I'm Derek Thompson, the host of the podcast Plain English. We tackle technology, politics, culture, history, everything that's happening in the world and why it matters. New episodes of Plain English drop every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Pressbox Final Edition. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. I feel the material we have been covering on this podcast over the last few weeks has been really interesting and also kind of heavy. ESPN layoffs, Fox News trial, Tucker Carlson, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought we'd do something really different today. There is a new piece in The Atlantic just up today, Wednesday, called The Making of Tom Hanks. And it's by one of my very favorite writers, Chris Heath, who I started reading in GQ back in the early 2000s. Take a moment, if you can, read the piece, and I think you'll see all that is so interesting about Heath's writing. His style, which tends to be, I would say, very modest and very effective because it's modest, his ability to go to an actor like Hanks, who's been interviewed a million times and find one or two or three or four or five or six new things to pull out of him. In this case, a new story about how Hanks's grandfather was killed back in the 1930s, which is really, really interesting. He is such an interesting writer. He knows the celebrity profile as well as anybody. So today we talked about that Hanks story. We talked about his career at magazines like Details and GQ and about many of the interviews he's done with Prince, with Robert De Niro, with Russell Crowe, and also about the non-celebrity profiles, a very interesting part of his career too. Here's Chris Heath on the art of the celebrity profile. All right, Chris, how did you first come to write celebrity profiles? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm English. As you can probably tell, and I, I, I start the very first things I did. I was uh, I started writing about pop music um, out of college. That's how I, that's how everything else started. Everything came from that. What do you like about writing those kind of pieces? You know, I, I, I've never thought of them as those kind of pieces, and maybe the answers, the part of the answers there, and certainly, certainly a big part of the answer why I, why I continue to do them is there. Um, you know, I, I came into a world where, where a lot, if not most people think that there's a, that there's, that there's 
two kinds of pieces, and that's one of them. And let's be honest that they're somewhat lesser. Um, and so, and so, if you have any success as a writer, quite often you're expected to um, sort of uh, move up from from writing about uh, people, particularly famous people, to doing other kinds of writing. Um, and I always wanted to do, to do all kinds of all those kinds of writing. And also, I never really agreed that they were different, and I really don't to this day. And I don't think of them as different. How did you prepare to interview Tom Hanks for The Atlantic? Um, you know, I, I you know, as a, as a general rule, I like to do a fairly, fairly uh, huge amount of research uh, with, with, you know, with the expectation that I might use absolutely none of it. Um, but particularly, particularly when there's someone who's really, really famous, like Tom Hanks, and has a very long trail behind them. I think there's a, there, people can tend to almost get put off and think, well, there's nothing to find. There's nothing to research, because if there was, everyone would know it. Um, and quite often, that's exactly where if you dig really deep, you find all kinds of things. You know, you, there's all kinds of tendrils that have been chanced upon just once and then never picked up on. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I always get quite excited at the prospect of, no, no, let's dive in here. There'll be something. When you're reading old profiles of an actor like Hanks, do you feel competitive with them? Like I'm going to write something even better than this? Um, I don't think that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading. I, I, I probably feel pr- plenty competitive as a sort of general <laughs> demeanor. I think most writers do. Um, but I, I'm not really thinking about that when I'm, I'm just looking for stuff at that point. How did you find Hanks when you sat down with him at a hotel in London? You know, he's, uh, it's no, you know, his reputation is, is, is of being incredibly affable and he's, he's a sort of supercharged version of that. But he, but he's, he's also, he's, he's incredibly energetic and incredibly kind of switched on and incredibly interested in stuff. Um, so that, you know, that's the, that's the first thing that hits you. How do you get an actor like Hanks, who's been asked a million questions, to take you someplace new? Well, I mean, hopefully by you know, hopefully by by having by knowing enough of what they've said a million times that you'll steer away from those things as they come because they still do come. Uh, so you know, so, so someone like Tom Hanks does have a few go-to places to explain himself, and um, and you know, and fair enough, and and you know, some of them are interesting too. But but you know, I'm alert to those, and I'm always trying to move on to something else. <laughs> Let me steer you away from this anecdote <laughs> that I've read you say a few dozen <laughs> times in the past. Well, I try not to declare it or make it obvious, but it's in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought was fascinating about your story: you found some information about how Hanks's grandfather was killed back in the 1930s that Hanks himself did not know. How did that happen? You know, I was just, um, you know, researching. I, you know, one, uh, Hanks has done a lot of, uh, on a, a lot of podcasts in the last few years. Uh, so, you know, that that's a lot of listening. Uh, you know, so I was going through the hour after hour after hour of these podcasts and he did one. I think it, I think it was, I might get it wrong, but I think it was an Australian podcast he did during lockdown a couple of years ago. And he mentioned, uh, this thing about his father, uh, that he, sorry, about his grandfather, that his father had, as he, as he told the story, that his, his father had seen his grandfather be killed, uh, when his father was young. Um, you know, so obviously that I was surprised not to have known about that 
any other way. Um, and I just started researching and I, you know, I, I, I like, uh, you know, I like noodling around in an archive. <laughs> Uh, you know, so pretty soon I was going pretty deep into a load of 1930s California newspapers. And there was a lot there. there you know, there's a lot about the trial. There were, I think, I think, I, I think I found about 80 stories. Uh, um, you know, a lot of which are paragraph long, just saying the court, the court proceedings have been postponed for another week. Um, but cumulatively, you know, there, there, there was, uh, a, a pretty fascinating, rich and sad, tragic story. And it was a bit different to the one he seemed to know. And it was it was weird going into you know going into thinking I well I knew I know this thing it it um it felt like an awkward thing to know uh, and to try and discuss but you know nonetheless I you know tried to make that happen. And how did Hanks feel about learning this new information about his family? I think that's a really good question, and you know you can you know have to people will read read as I'm as I explain how I what I how it all came up and how I told him in the article. I, I can't really read his reaction to it. I mean, he was very, you know, he he, he on the surface he seemed uh, interested and interested to know, but um, but somewhat detached from it. And I don't know whether you know again you feel you, could, you it's a very unusual situation, and you don't know whether you're sort of crossing some kind of line by bringing this up or whether there's some other reason that he's, he, he's got, you know, somewhat detached attitude to it or whether I'm reading it wrong and that that's not what it was anyway. Another thing I enjoyed about the story was Hank's talking about how he feels about being called nice all the time. How does he feel about it? Well, you know, you know, again, I think the term he used is it's almost like a pejorative at this point. Um, you know, and it, it's, you know, you, you can see, you can see what he means because, you know, you know, there's certain kind of compliments that can, uh, you know, that can be brandished as kind of insults because they kind of, they, they compliment and belittle at the same time. Um, and I think, I think that, you know, it's great. You know, you, you know, he's, he's, you know, by the way, he does seem really nice, but he, so he's nice, but you know, it, it's sort of, it's sort of, somehow that I can see how that probably will probably reduce, you know, you work you know, for years trying to do the best possible job on some project. And then someone says, you're nice. It's like, the, so I think it can really, it can, it could, it might, might seem to reduce that somehow. You point out in the article, this is not an adjective. We hung around Tom Hanks's neck during his Forrest Gump Philadelphia period. This is something that <laughs> the press hung around his neck in the eighties when he first no, became. It, no, it's incredible looking back. I did. I wasn't aware of this, but you know, all these first, in the first few years of his success, people immediately, uh, put the, put this on him. Either, either that's how he seemed to people. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, there's a, there's a, there's a monologue on Saturday Night Live in, I think, 1988, which is playing off this cliche about him that he's nice. You know, already then it was a cliche. I like too uh, in the piece where he bristles a little bit of being called nice, but he's okay with being called a symbol of rectitude. Like, oh, <laughs> Hanks will settle for that. Well, you know, <laughs> what's his choice? You know, or you know, or he protests too much, and you know, like you know, I also say it's become, you know, it's become as much for almost as much for cliche to look for his dark side, and you know, I'm not sure there is some, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a very journalistic thing to do and i'm not sure there is some <laughs> incredible dark side there and so what's he supposed to do try and try and pretend a dark side or or try and understand how people think of him and how he and also you know he tr obviously clearly tries to uh live in a, in a in a in a 
in a way that uh, has some of these values. So why shouldn't people notice it? Celebrities often become available to profile writers when they have a new movie out, or in Hanks's case, a new novel out. How much do you feel compelled to write about their current project in your article? Generally, I, 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 I'm, I don't think very hard about that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe to a fault, I don't think very hard about that. Except that in this case, it seemed to me, just seemed to me an advantage. It seemed to me really interesting that someone like Tom Hanks could have seriously written a proper novel um, at a, a first novel, you know, in his 60s. Um, and it, it just seemed to offer an interesting uh, way to to come at him that, uh, that, that, you know, that a new movie might not have offered. Uh, and you know, I, I, it's, it seemed nothing but a, nothing but a, a good opportunity. Let me ask you a little about your career. How did you come to start writing for details in 1990? The truth, I, I worked for this pop magazine called Smash Hits in England. Um, that uh, it, 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 it's hard. It's always hard to explain what a great magazine this was and what great writing it had in it because people just look at you like you must be deluded. Um, but I learned an incredible amount. There were these incredibly sharp people working there who had this incredibly. It was a very smart, wry kind of magazine, and um, and there was an American version of it which which maybe wasn't quite didn't quite uh, fit in the culture in the same way called Star Hits. And there was a guy called David Keeps who edited Star Hits. And he was, when James Truman took up details, he was one of the people um, who was working with him. And so he knew me through Smash Hits. So it came through that. I guess I probably have to back up here too, given uh, uh, what kind of magazine was details for people who don't know. (laughs) That's a good question. You know, because retrospectively, it became a very different magazine, and it became a sort of more mainstream kind of men's magazine. Um, and it, before Condé Nast had bought it, it, you know, and I don't even know that version. It was a sort of New York downtown magazine, right? That's um, my memory. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it was in, and under James Truman, it became something really, to me, kind of special. In between, it was a pop culture magazine, but it was a very inquiring quite sort of spiky for the climate in those days magazine that, that, you know, just approached everything in a very smart and very kind of, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know quite how to describe it. I was reading the story you wrote about Prince in details in 1991 (laughs) when his record Diamonds and Pearls came out. What was it like to interview Prince? Well, obviously mightily weird. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know, I went to, um, I'd, 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 I'd had a weird experience with him in Paris doing a story for someone else a couple of years before. And then I, so I get, I'm allowed to go to Paisley Park and I was there for a week and he would sort of be in the distance, usually across a kind of, um, there's this open plan upstairs and he'd be on the other side of some walkway and you'd sort of see him and he would, he didn't even say hello ever in these circumstances. And, uh, and then you'd see him a few hours later and he'd be wearing something completely different, some amazing Prince kind of outfit. And it just went on and on with this sort of vague thing of, is he going to talk to me? <laughs> and I would meet all these other people. Uh, and then suddenly I got told, Prince is on the phone for you. <laughs> and so I'm in Minneapolis for a week and he calls me on the phone. <laughs> and I sit in the Paisley Park boardroom and have this very Prince-like discussion with him. But you know, for me, I was—I—I I mean, I remained fascinated by Prince, but I was uh, very, very fascinated by Prince then. So it was a fascinating, it was an amazing experience to be able to 
get in, think about that in a proper way. And it was a stipulation of this phone call that you could not record it. So you're writing out what Prince is saying in longhand while he's talking to you on the phone? Yeah, de- desperately, desperately scribbling like crazy. I don't have, I don't have shorthand. <laughs> How did you come to start writing for GQ in the early 2000s? Um, I, you know, I, I was at Details for a few years. Then I was at Rolling Stone for a few years. Um, and then, you know, then when Jim Nelson took over GQ, um, uh, we met and, and you know, I, I, I moved over. What did GQ in that period offer a writer? I I was you know sort of I, I'd been I'd been having a great time at Rolling Stone, but it was very difficult to get them to think of me not just as a as a profile writer. Uh, now it was a you know not a terrible problem to have, and from a 2023 perspective, very much not a terrible problem to have. But you know I was doing as many cover stories as I could want possibly want to do. But, it, but I had to fight very hard. I'd come there for details. I'd done all kinds of stories and I'd come there to do all kinds of stories. And I was really struggling to get to, to let them think, of, to get them to think of me like that. So in the end, I thought, well, let's go somewhere where hopefully that will happen. And it, and it did happen. And I had, an, you know, G, GQ was a, an amazing kind of, you know, not that I didn't like being at Rolling Stone, but GQ was an amazing kind of opening up of what I was able to do. As you allude to, we now look back at that period as the golden age of magazines, maybe the end of the golden age of magazines. Did it feel like you were working in a golden age at the time? I think it always does in retrospect, uh, you know, because because don't forget, I, or I think people forget, you know, in in you know in the nineties and in the early two thousands, which are now seen as golden ages, you know, New York's full of people who thought that Esquire in the nineteen seventies was the only golden age of magazines. <laughs> <laughs> the golden age um, is always the thing we just missed yes no i mean and you know maybe could we stretch it to think someday someone will think now is maybe i don't know <laughs> mm, yeah in some way or another uh, a couple of pieces i wanted to ask you about what do you remember about interviewing russell crowe at the top of his fame in 2005 well he you know he was a curious character i, li- I liked him um but he you know i liked him because he was um you know, he, he was a very bad celebrity, uh, in a way that I, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. I don't know if this will make sense to people, but I think the key thing he said to me that, uh, that made me understand him the best was he was explaining that his attitude was basically the attitude of the new musical express, the British music, music magazine in the late seventies. And it's a sort of punk rock attitude of, you know, you do, you do things for, you know, he was, he was explaining it in the context of being horrified at, uh, that Robert De Niro was doing, I guess, was it American Express ads? Was that that's what, what it was? was yeah, and yeah. George Clooney and Harrison Ford doing overseas commercials. Yeah, and he and you know and, and he wasn't you know you know that's this seemed a very genuine. I mean, obviously, the kind of thing that make you incredibly unpopular and it is very bad politics, but it just seemed a very genuine. You could see a sort of seventeen-year-old kid having a real attitude and view about how things should be. Um, and you know, that, and I, I kind of liked that contrary part of him. Yeah. It almost speaking of golden ages reads like a playboy interview from the seventies where there's this just absolutely unfiltered, interesting quality to it. I always wondered, did you run that Q and a because the answers were so interesting (laughs) that you didn't need to go around it? Actually, funny enough, I'm, I'm, uh, my instinctive answer is yes. And, you know, and, and normally even, a, in a, you know, that's when I, 
in any kind of piece when I drop into Q and A is just when the, you know, when when what's being said is so good that you want to hear it unfiltered. But I I actually think, if I'm honest, that I think there was some stipulation that we had to agree to do the piece Q and A. I think it was some control thing. I might be remembering this wrong, but it's coming back to me that. Um, and I, but I certainly didn't mind at all if that, if that, if I'm remembering that right, because what he was saying worked really well in that form. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You get directly involved in the negotiating phases of stories like that? I get as un- uninvolved as I possibly can be. Um, <laughs> which may be a mistake, but I'm, yeah, I, 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 I think it's weird. I think, you know, I think more and more people expected to do that, but I, I feel it, I, I feel it's, you know, it, I don't think there, you know, it, it, it feels like there's a line that can too easily be crossed between negotiating how the story is done and what the story is. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't think the writer, if possible, should have any part in negotiating the second. So if you come in fresh uh, after a negotiation that someone else has handled, then you feel like you can come in and write the story you want to. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I, you know, it's not even, you know, it, it's, it, I just think it's, it's, yeah, it just, it just seems weird to me to, um, you know, it, you know, I, I and mean, I, I come in with the best possible intentions and, and, you know, I hope to just make people really interesting and, and, it, and it's really important to me to be incredibly honest, but I don't think I should be like making lots of sort of representations about how it's going to turn out b- before I do it even though I think it's going to turn out in a way that I really hope is going to be good for everyone involved. It's not, you know, because, you know, I, I shouldn't be in the representations business, I don't think. And also, I I, I don't want to know what, you know, I, I also don't want to know what the, I don't want to know what a story is going to be until I do it. That's the excitement of it. What was it like to profile Gary Oldman in 2009? Well... <laughs> You know, <laughs> he says <laughs> with freight in freighted fashion. Well, I, you know, because I still, I still don't. Funny enough, I was speaking about this with the editor of that piece last week, weirdly, and I think we're still trying to figure some things out. You know, I'd, 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 
interviewed Gary Oldman a couple of times um, in the 1990s and got on tremendously well with him. Um, and it's so much so that, you know, we'd run in, even then run into each other at other times and spent a little bit of time together. Um, and, um, and so then I was doing this piece in, in, as you say, 2009. And, um, I don't really know what happened except, you know, he's, he's, um, he's got a manager called Douglas Urbanski, uh, who seems to have done a tremendous faithful job, um, in nurturing Gary Oldman's career and continues to, to this day, and Gary Oldman clearly, um, you know, feels very, very, very close to him. But Douglas Sabansky clearly felt something very negative towards me uh, in a way that I really didn't understand. Uh, so, you know, I mean, this being Gary Oldman still was completely fascinating. But there's this, you know, if if, there's, if you read the story that's online, um, there's like I think a three or four thousand word prequel to it where I explain. <laughs> Um, all of the surrounding things, and and I, I don't really understand them. <laughs> and the piece, the material in the piece is fabulous. It doesn't Absolutely. seem like Gary Oldman was worried about talking to you at all. I didn't think so. And even you know, in the first half of the interview was done with Douglas Urbanski there, and we seemed. I thought we had a very genial kind of conversation. Um, but now I, you know, I, I I'm still somewhat puzzled. But um, anyway, I've still got a huge amount of time for Gary Oldman. I think he's fascinating. And very talented. On a very different note, how did you find the experience of interviewing Donald Trump when he was running for president in 2015? Well, talk about one that you think about in retrospect. Um, you know, you know, I, I've never really stopped thinking about that since. Um, but you know, when I interviewed him, he'd been, um, you know, he'd been top of the polls for a few months, but really, no one took the situation seriously. Um, that he certainly in, 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 I, I think in most of, most in the media world, although I, I remember, um, I remember looking at the Las Vegas odds of him becoming president uh, a couple of days before I interviewed him. I think because I wanted to say, to be honest, I wanted to say, well, th the odds makers only think you're, I think I was expecting like 20 to one or something. And he was six to one against was where the money was when I interviewed him. And I thought, well, six to one, that's, that's real, <laughs> you know, that's not somebody, you know, you know, um, you know, discounting your chances at all. That's a very real chance. And I did the interview on the, you know, I went in there thinking though, you know, I, I, I'm not, I can't pretend that I thought he was going to be the Republican nominee or that I thought he would end up being president. But I went in there saying, thinking, this is how I should do the interview, like totally a hundred percent taking seriously that this person is on a path to be president and to interview them like that. Um, and, uh, but I found it, you know, I, I mean, it, again, it, in retrospect, this, you know, feels, feels like almost saying nothing, but I, I was really shocked by how, how much he just seemed to be making things up in front of me. Um, making up really important policy decisions. You know, I, I can't remember the exact things, but they, they, you know, I know I was asking about his nuclear policy, um, you know, nuclear defense policy at one point, and he just seemed to pivot depending on what I said to him and make up a new policy in front of me. And it seemed terrifying. But, but I did remember coming out thinking, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever met, I've met very few people and I've, you know, I've met quite a lot of different kinds of people in doing what I do. He had an incredible force of personality. 
in the room that really surprised me. I was not, I was not expecting that and I wasn't aware that that was going to be like that. And he so, it was demanding that you kind of agreed with his agenda and be on board. Um, but, um, you know, and I've, you know, found myself resisting that, not, you know, just because I was trying to make sense of him, not, you know, but it was, I wasn't, I, I, you know, and it, but in retrospect, I think that, that says quite a lot, but it, you know, it, 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 uh, yeah, I still think about that interview a lot. You know, there's a, you know, I'm, I'm not, probably won't come as a bombshell if I said I'm not politically too aligned with him. Um, and you know, you sort of think, you know, you know, you have that ridiculous part of yourself where you think, is there a question I could have asked then that would have been really helpful to the world? <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's interesting too. Every two or three questions, he looks at you and says, boy, this is going to be a really negative piece. This is going to turn out really badly for me and GQ. Yeah. But I, I think he, that, that was basically sort of pressuring me to like turn this around. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it was, um, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was strange. <laughs> Who was the actor or director you found least interested in cooperating with a profile? No one jumps to mind thinking of that. I think, you know, you know, I think by usually by the time I'm there, that means that they have some interest in it. And at that point, I sort of think it's up to me. And, and if they're not, uh, if they're not responding, then that's my fault, not theirs. My nominee was going to be Robert De Niro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you, have? You, have, you have something of a point there. <laughs> I think he said he found your questions creepy at one point because you were asking, you know, follow-up questions about some of his earlier movies. Yeah, I found that really insulting. Um, you know, and it's weird when you suddenly get to that visceral thing where you're, f- f- you know, you sort of forget for a moment it's Robert De Niro, who I, who I, uh, you know, as uh, in his creative life, I have the most incredible respect for. But, you know, it's really an- annoying and insulting for someone to call you creepy when actually you're working really hard to ask them respectful questions about their life to write something interesting. You know, I went in, I, you know, I read, as ever, I read a lot of interviews before doing that interview. And I kind of made a vow, whatever I do, I'm not going to write one of those Robert De Niro pieces that's all about how it was a disaster doing this Robert De Niro piece. And of course, hopefully in a different and interesting way, but that's exactly in some way what I ended up having to do. Um, but, you know, to, I mean, which culminated in, and in some ways he was very gracious and he was, I don't really understand, you know, because he was trying, he wasn't like, I mean, did, that was insulting what he said, but a lot of the time he was in as much pain or more pain than I was, you know, to, you know, in his inability or unwillingness to kind of do this, but he was like genuinely trying. And so we kept, you know, and we, we, we met a couple of times that we, we met. We met and at this, um, where he was doing the music for his movie, The Good Shepherd. And then he just, he, he said his head wasn't at the right place. Uh, and so then we met again. And so he said, can you stay in town? So I stayed in town for a week. I had a whole trip for a magazine to go on the, um, to take a train from London to, um, Vietnam. I had to rebook the whole trip to wait for Robert De Niro in New York, waited in New York. And I went back to his office, sat down, asked the question that I'd been asking um, uh, before. Not not anything controversial at all. He looked at me and 
he terminated the interview after 55 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And then you are left to write the dreaded piece you did not want to write, which is, I am trying and not succeeding in interviewing Robert De Niro. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I mean, he must have some other version of it, but, you know, I, I, I found it dispiriting uh, because I really didn't want to write that piece. And, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I, you know, and I don't, like I say, I don't think, you know, I, I, I think the way he acted cumulatively was weird and, and I guess sort of unfriendly in a certain way, but I, I don't think he wasn't trying or wanting, you know, I think he was doing his version of, of, of trying to participate in this. And, and I think he thought, you know, I, I think he genuinely felt like I was doing something wrong to stop this work. On the other side of the coin, who were the actors and directors most interested in the process of profile writing? That's interesting. I, I, I think I, I think the reason why that an answer doesn't jump to mind is that I would, if if I got a sign of that, I think I would run from a mile from it and try and, uh, <laughs> you know, try and divert from that kind of thought. You know, it's like you know, one of us thinking too hard about that's too many. Two of us, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> I've developed something I call the Tad Friend Rule, which is named after the New Yorker writer. And it states that the worse a new movie is, the better the profile of the actor or director is likely to be because they will have more incentive to cooperate. Do you ever find that to be true? <laughs> I, I, I had never thought that, but um, I, um, I can see, I can see. Yeah, I, I think that could be true to a degree. Although, you know, there, there is, of course, you know, you've got the awkward, you know, thing sitting in the middle of you, which is this movie that doesn't make sense, you know, and, and whereas if something's genuinely good and interesting, that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that can, that can actually be quite a, you know, can oil other kinds of conversations quite well too. I was, I, I, I always think of Tad Friend because, uh, all the time you, you, you talking about a golden age. Since I started writing, um, you know, and, and as I say, I do lots of other kinds of writing, but writing these kind of pieces that you're asking me about, since I've been doing that, people have been talking about that the death of the celebrity profile and that it's over. And Tad Friend wrote a piece declaring that, I, I'd have to look when, probably 20 years ago, I used to put pull out these pieces and I used to have a folder of them whenever they'd come along because I'd always think, well, yeah, you know, and yeah, it gets harder and harder probably to get the kind of kind of access and the kind of um, freedom to do things in a certain way. But it, I've been being told it's impossible all of the time I've been writing. And again, people are sort of stacking it up against some, um, I think, sometimes mythic, sometimes real, sometimes mythical kind of 70s era. You know, but, you know, you, know, you, you can find articles written in the 90s that say every interview uh, done now with a celebrity is done in a hotel room for half an hour. Well, you know, none of these, none of these, none of these things we're talking about were done like that. And, and, you know, so it always, it makes me laugh that, you know, people are, you know, and we're not saying it's not hard and, and harder to get the opportunities to do things like this, but, you know, it's, people have declared it over and gone long, long time ago when it hasn't been. Can you illustrate for me how it's become harder? I think I, I I think a lot of it I'm insulated from. Um, it's those conversations that I'm I'm um, 
that I try not to have uh, with the intermediaries. But I think there's more and more attempts to delineate exactly what an article is and how it's done. Um, you know, I know, I know in some worlds, you know, people, uh, you know, want to cherry pick who should write an article. Um, there's certainly parts of the media, you know, not parts that I'm, I'm involved in where people have got copy approval on, on things they're writing, you know, that are written about them. And I, you know, I think that's probably happening. I'm not an expert on this, but I think that's probably happening in, in some quite higher profile places, way more than people are aware. Um, but it, you know, but it's still, you know, I still, you know, I, uh, you know, I still see plenty of worth in trying to do these things, you know, the way that I think they should be done. And I, and I think, you know, I also think that, you know, the, um, that when, that when it goes well, it, for the person being interviewed, there's a real benefit to it. Um, you know, as their attention has been, um, broken up into more and more sort of tiny bite-sized chunks through different technologies and, and, and different ways that things are done. I think that you, know, you can spend a huge amount of your year talking about yourself, but never really saying anything about yourself. And so they, so that fairly given, uh, with someone who's genuinely interested and going to communicate it, the opportunity to say something about yourself that might actually echo and, and might actually, you might actually sit, recognize yourself in what's written. I think that can be an opportunity. Speaking of the other kinds of stories you've written. One of my favorites is the 2012 story you wrote about the Zanesville, Ohio Zoo Massacre. For people who haven't read it, what happened in Zanesville, Ohio? Well, there, there's this guy who who was sort of quietly living, uh, Terry Thompson, in, in outside Zanesville. And as, as is way more easy to do than I'd been aware, and I think that a lot of people were aware, he, he had... Um, he had collect, collected on his own land a private zoo of 80 animals, um, including, a, you know, lots of tigers um, and, you know, you know, you know, all kinds of, and, you know, and that's, this is something that is legal to do in many states in America. And then he, um, he had, um, he had died um it, the, the exact chain of events isn't isn't completely clear but you know it's, he had either either killed himself or been killed by one of the animals and the uh, but most likely anyway he'd let the animals the animals were free and he was dead um and uh and these animals were heading out of his property um into zanesville so the, you know that was the central scenario which the article was about but the articles were both trying to understand him trying to understand what happened on that night but also then diving much deeper into this world of people keeping um animals like this and and you know it, it was i mean it, for me it was incredible i would you know track people down and arrange to go and see them and you just come up to a perfectly normal of a sometimes tiny house and you'd go around the back and there'd be a little little cage not much of one and there'd be a there'd be a lion in there <laughs> that's something you expect to see <laughs> every time you walk into somebody's backyard no 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 and it was anyway it was it was um yeah it was that was that was about as interesting as you know, you know the 
one of the greatest delights when you're writing something is to find yourself into a world that you really don't know anything about that just opens up around you that's more fascinating than you could possibly imagine. So you go to Zanesville for GQ and Esquire, which was the other leading men's magazine, sends the writer Chris Jones to Zanesville to work on a similar story. Did he and his story inhabit your thoughts as you were working on yours? Well, I only found out he was there halfway through. Um, I was in the sheriff's office and uh, talking to a couple of the sheriffs in this boardroom and another person stuck their head in and said, oh, is this the Esquire guy? <laughs> and, I, and I said, what? And anyway, so then they... They couldn't remember Chris's name, but they said enough that I immediately suddenly flashed and I realized that we'd been in the same hotel and that he'd, that I'd come down in the lift and he'd walked in the lift because I know what Chris Jones looked like. I, you know, I, 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 you know, like he was, he was at that time probably my favorite writer at Esquire. Uh, so, um, so I thought, oh, uh, that's, that's weird. And this is going to be weird. And, uh, but I, but I, you know, I called the magazine and because I thought they might be worried that we were both doing this story. And my editor spoke to the editor in chief, Jim Nelson, and called me back. And I said, What did Jim say? And he said, Oh, he said, Jim said, Oh, it's a zoo off. <laughs> <laughs> Which was great. You know, I thought, you know, I thought that was a great sort of uh, expression of support that, you know, that, uh, that, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I thought, great, I'll, 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 write, I'll write a story, he'll write a story, and we'll see. But I wasn't worried about writing a story. And the results of the zoo off were published on the web on the same day in 2012. No, I, I mean, I presume one, one magazine realized the other one was coming. Uh, there, was this, there certainly wasn't collusion. <laughs> <laughs> you said Jones is one of your favorite writers. So do you immediately click on his piece and see what he came up with? I did, uh, you know, and, and, you know, his story is good, but it's an awkward, it's awkward talking about it because, you know, I, I sort of sat on my hands and didn't have any public part in this. And, and Chris was a little ungracious about the whole thing. Uh, and I think he would say that now he, he's later apologized, uh, you know, and he, but he sort of waged war against me and GQ and my article. You won a national magazine award for that story. What, I view, did, yeah. what view do you take of journalism awards? Well, when you win them, you think they're the most amazing things <laughs> that could exist. Um, you know, I, you know, it's it's great to, uh, you know, I mean, on one hand, it, you know, it, it's it's you know, when you when you feel some kind of external validation that you might be doing things right, that's nice. But I I don't think I'd feel particularly different if I never got nominated for anything. You know, I, I don't think you can, I, you know, I don't think you can th think about that as a goal or plan how or go about how you do things based on that. You said earlier, you don't think of a story like Zanesville or the story you wrote about the alleged serial killer Thomas Quick or known as Thomas Quick as being different from a story you'd write about Tom Hanks. Why is it not different? I, you know, obviously for the reader, it's probably pretty different. I'm not um, <laughs> completely blind to that. But what I mean is that, you know, I'm thinking about the same stuff. I'm thinking about, you know, it's, it, you know, when you say it, it almost sounds banal, but I'm thinking about why people do what they do, how we do, how we do things, and then how you tell a story about them. 
you know, that, you know, and, and, you know, I, I just, I guess it, re- you know, the way, you know, that, that probably seems obvious when you're writing about a possible serial killer or, or, an, you know, someone at the center of an escaped animal situation. Um, maybe it's less obvious when it's a celebrity because they, because some people think there's some kind of, you're in some kind of, celebrity industrial complex that you're satisfying and you're doing things according to some kind of code or something. I don't know. I, do, I just don't think like that. I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking, I'm trying to work out what's interesting about people. And, you know, do, you know, celebrities, there's some disadvantage to interviewing people who are famous, but there's a great advantage and there's a sort of shortcut to people's attention and people tend to know things about them. So you can pivot to interesting things really quickly. You know, so I, I don't know. I, I just, I, 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 in my mind, maybe it's weird to say it out loud, but in my mind, I just don't feel like I'm doing something different. What's on your list of things you still want to write? When it comes to people, you know, people, I'm often asked, oh, who are the people you still want to interview? And I'm, te- and I clam up and I'm, and I seem like the most useless uh, potential writer because I don't think like that. Uh, you know, there's whatever it is, 8 million people out there. There's probably about a billion and a half of them, if I look closely, who I would th- wouldn't think were interesting enough to write about, I guess. But I'm interested in the, all the others. Um, you know, that there's that, that most people are interesting enough to write about, you know, so I just want to keep finding different different people and different ways to write about them. Chris Heath, his new story about Tom Hanks is in The Atlantic and on the Atlantic's website right now. Chris, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Thanks so much. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All right, that's the Press Box. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. Uh, For my recommendation this week, I'm going to pick a novel. It's not even a new novel, but it's one I finally read after it had been on my shelf for maybe a decade. It's called The Imperfectionists, and it's by Tom Rackman. R-A-C-H-M-A-N. I've been trying to read journalism novels lately. And this is about a newspaper that's a little bit like the International Herald Tribune. And there's a chapter devoted to each of the inhabitants of this newspaper. I'm not going to say much more, but if you are inclined as I am to read about newspapers and read about journalism and just to read a very, very, very funny well-observed book, you will love the imperfections. That's my recommendation. In the meantime, read, relax, revise your nut graphs, and let us meet back here Monday, shall we, for more lukewarm takes about the media. Have a great weekend.